It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember, it's the risk takers that are rewarded. People are sick and tired of being marketed to, and they're sick and tired of being sold. The single biggest story today in sales and marketing is how our customers are buying different Hey everyone, it's your host Edward Ford and welcome to the Growth of Podcast, the show about all things B2B SaaS marketing. This podcast is brought to you by Advanced B2B, the growth marketing agency that helps B2B SaaS businesses generate sustainable revenue growth through marketing. So if you're looking for an agency partner who will help you get measurable results from your marketing, then check out advancedb2b.com for more info. Now, joining us today on the show is Agalos Muzakitis, who is Growth Product Manager at Growth Sandwich. And in this episode, we're talking about how customer research can help B2B SaaS companies grow to their potential. Now, we hear a lot about different approaches to growth, such as product-led growth, sales-led growth, or marketing-led growth. But in this episode, we look at it from another perspective, and that's customer-led growth. Agalos is an expert on customer research and an advocate of customer-led growth, and in this episode he breaks down this methodology that puts the customer at the core of everything you do, including what being customer-led truly means, how customer-led growth helps marketers, and how to use the jobs-to-be-done framework to support customer-led growth. Agalos also covers the value gap issue in marketing, as well as what it really means to have customer empathy as a marketer. So here's episode number 80 of the Growth of Podcast with Agalos Muzakitis, Growth Product Manager at Growth Sandwich. Welcome to another episode of the Growth of Podcast, and it's my pleasure to welcome Agalos Muzakitis to the show, who is Growth Product Manager at Growth Sandwich. So Agalos, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Growth of Podcast. Edward, thank you for having me and uh, quite surprised and flattered that you managed to pronounce my surname. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> no, great to hear and great we could catch up. I know we've been exchanging messages for some time. We spoke last year about setting something up. So I'm super excited we finally had time to catch up and record this episode. It's an awesome topic, which is how customer research can help B2B SaaS companies grow to their potential. And in particular, you advocate an approach called customer-led growth. So to kick things off, what is customer-led growth? Okay. Uh, Customer-led growth um, isn't really a new thing, but uh, it's uh, 2021, the year that um, it has exploded. So what is it? Um, It's a business methodology that um, leverages customer research and qualitative data to drive growth and product decisions. Uh, So ultimately, it puts the customer at the core. So when I share this definition, people sometimes think that um, we just ask the customers what they want. Uh, It's not really that. And to avoid this misunderstanding, this doesn't mean that we are building and doing whatever the customer tells us. In fact, we go very deep in order to understand what are the customer's needs based on evidence and research. So we use research to drive very important product decisions. So what are we going to build and how and growth decisions and ultimately go to market decisions. Yeah, this sounds good. So what then is the difference between customer-led compared to other approaches we hear about like product-led growth, sales-led growth, marketing-led growth? Uh, That's a great question. So um, let me give you an example to highlight uh, the differences. You have a software company that is using um, a free trial as um, a way to go to market or a freemium model. So this is product-led, right? On the other hand, you have uh, a company that um, invests a lot into inbound marketing and captures leads, marketing leads 
to lead forms and then starts the process of nurturing these leads and trying to convert them. This is marketing led. Now, when it comes to sales led, we have salespeople that try to generate leads for the business. Those three are kinda conflicting. Of course, there are hybrid models that mix uh, elements from all of them, but between those three, they are kinda conflicting. On the other hand, being customer-led is not really conflicting with any of them. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Being customer-led, using customer research and leveraging qualitative data is a must-have, especially when you are product-led, especially when you are sales-led and marketing-led. It's just the word led that creates a misunderstanding and uh, makes them kind of sound comparable or similar, but in fact, customer-led so using customer research to drive decisions is something that you cannot live with no matter the go-to-market um, model that you have chosen, especially if you are product-led, if I may say. And I say especially because when you are sales-led, you are kind of customer-led. You have people speaking with people. So there is the, a level of empathy that is driven by people. When you are marketing-led, so-and-so, but when you are product-led, when you want to be uh, low-touch or no-touch and want to make a product and build the product that does the job, you have to be surgically accurate and specific in the way that you say things, in the way that you deliver value, in the way that you deliver experiences through your product. So in that case, being customer-led is, <laughs> is like you cannot live without it. Yeah, absolutely. And you spoke earlier about the customer-led approach informing product and growth decisions, but how does being customer-led and doing customer research help marketing in particular? So research can be, can be the detail that, uh, that can make a marketing campaign successful or uh, a failure. And uh, let me share just a couple of uh, examples of what you can do with research that can help you if, you are, um, if you're running a marketing campaign or if you are a marketer or if you are the founder of a company and you want to invest more into marketing. So the, the very first thing and a very simple thing is that you can find patterns in the ways users describe your value and use these patterns, use these words to put them into your ads and your landing pages and your assets to create this feeling that we, that we have sometimes when we visit a website, this feeling that, oh, this, this is exactly what I needed. This speaks exactly in my mind. So when you see a copy or when you see um, a punchline that you think this is exactly what I needed and this speaks right to my mind, it's either luck or research. So that's how we create that feeling that at the end of the day, it's a qualitative thing, it's a feeling, but <laughs> it actually optimizes your metrics. Another thing that you can do is, uh, which is like a, <laughs> it's one of the biggest problems in the software industry. You can fix a positioning that is either complex, fuzzy, a positioning that nobody understands or nobody seems to care enough. So um, you can do that by running the value gap analysis, which I would be more than happy to, to speak more in detail. But what is it in, uh, in a few words is that you can basically compare what your best users do within your platform or solution versus what your failed users did. So you can kind of understand what is the right 
position for you to be to attract more of the best users. Uh, how to be the right solution for the users that you want to have in. So it gives you a very good um, understanding of who you are or who you need to be, which is the positioning. Um, and the, another thing that you can do is that um, you can build the right things and you can avoid building the wrong things. So that might sound like a product decision, but in fact, in, in the software industry, product and marketing are kind of the same thing now. Uh, it's your go-to-market. It's what you are building and for whom. So building the wrong things will have an impact on your marketing. So you can deeply understand how you need to build stuff and what you need to build. And lastly, you can understand for whom are you building? What is the right person for you to build? Now, these are, these are questions that uh, lots of founders and marketers think that they have answered, but they haven't instead. Because when they realize what does it mean to fully and accurately give answers to these questions, then they will understand that they knew nothing before. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in particular, the point on marketing and product being so closely aligned, particularly for SaaS companies, is really, really important. And I think all marketers, though, in marketing teams would like to think they are customer-led. But how do we actually know if we you know, truly are customer-led? That's, that's a great question, Edward. And uh, the, the reality is that... Uh, um, there have, there have been research about that. Uh, I don't remember the figures, but um, the research was, uh, I think it was made by usertesting.com. They must have a graph uh, in their homepage. And it, it says in a, in a nutshell that uh, what is the percentage of companies that are truly customer-centric versus uh, what's the percentage of companies that are, are customer-centric. And the difference is something between 80% to 10% or 5%. So it's kind of true that um, companies, founders, marketers, product people like to believe or pretend to believe that they are customer centric. And in, in, my, in my understanding, um, they, it feels like it's a matter of ego. They cannot admit that they are not. So because, because how can you be customer centric if you don't speak with your customers? Uh, how can you be data-driven if you're not really trusting data? So I think it's, a, it's an ego thing, uh, but uh, never mind. What, what I want to say before answering your question is that, guys, all of you out there that don't like admitting that you're not customer-centric, don't worry, uh, nobody is. <laughs> there is only a small minority that is customer-centric, so we are, all, uh, we are all in the same category, so don't worry about that. Um, so to answer your question, how does it feel? How, how does it look like and feel like being customer-led? Uh, how do we know if we are truly customer-led? So if we are, are customer-led, we know with great certainty why marketing did not work as expected. And we can fix it. We don't wonder. We don't buy hopes for, from marketing consultants or from marketing agencies. We don't see a competitor or a friend that has used SEO and, and we think, oh, maybe we need to do SEO and then change our minds and we need to do more of that and then more of paid ads and then more of this. So this feeling of 
Um, we are in the middle of nowhere and we don't know why problems exist. We might fire the marketer, we might blame the agency, we might change tactics. These shouts out loud, you're not customer led. You don't know why things didn't work. The same applies to other big problems such as churn. So when, when there is churn, if you are customer led, you know why you have churn. A second thing is when you have churn problems or marketing problems, you don't treat them as problems. You know that they are symptoms of another problem. Now, in nine out of 10 cases, when you have a marketing problem, a consistent marketing problem, not an optimization issue or a churn problem. And again, I mean, I, I'm speaking about problem, not an optimization issue making 3%, 4% or the opposite. Then you understand that this is a symptom of another thing. That means that you have suspected that there is a bigger problem. That means that you have been customer led or that you are thinking on a customer centric mindset. Another thing that um, um, if we are customer led, we definitely know is that we know in, a, in ridiculous detail and like in surprisingly ridiculous detail, who is our ideal customer. We even know funny details about, about these people. We know their age, we know where they work. We know the size of the companies that they work, uh, geographical. Uh, we know exactly their customer journey. We know that uh, they, how many hours they, they sleep at night, what keeps them uh, uh, asleep, um, what are their fears, what are their motivations, uh, um, what are their um, ambitions. Uh, we, we, we know everything about them, both qualitative and uh, quantitative stuff. And we know such stuff in ridiculous detail because we have spoken with so many that in the first few minutes of a conversation with them, we can understand if they're right or wrong. So I have been there, both me and founders that we have worked together, understanding within the first 10 seconds, 15 seconds, if someone is right or not. And I mean, that, that is an example of a live conversation, but that can be done also, that can be reflected within your marketing. Another thing, we know people, why people choose us over others and why people choose others over us. We don't, we don't waste time on the wrong users. We don't waste time on the wrong positioning. We are accurate, surgically accurate in everything that we do. That reflects a customer-led mindset. And finally, when we build a new thing, a new feature, we know in great detail what is exactly the need, the problem, the job to be done, the expected outcome of our users, how users will use it, what do they expect from it, what are they going to do with it? And uh, this, this feeling that we are definitely certain about what we're building reflects a customer-led mindset. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is great to hear. And I think it's quite a wake-up call as well for, for us marketers who think we're customer-led, but this is what customer-led actually means in practice. And you spoke about customer-led growth at the top of the episode being a business methodology that puts the customer at the core, which is based on qualitative research. So what research frameworks do you like to use to support customer-led growth? I think, uh, I think all, everybody that knows me, including you, Edward, know that there is only <laughs> one framework for me. <laughs> I mean, I'm not... Um, I love any sort of research, uh, but uh, um, 
as a, as a researcher, there is one framework that just um, makes more sense for me, that just clicks more to me. And this is jobs to be done. Um, now, jobs to be done is a very big thing. And there are lots of schools of thought behind it. Now, if we, if we would geek out, especially about jobs to be done, we could uh, discuss if I'm, the, if, I'm, if I'm an advocate of the outcome-driven innovation approach, or, I have more, or if I am more of a Bob Moesta follower going towards the, the switch behavior and the forces. Uh, that would be extreme geeking out. <laughs> but uh, when it comes to jobs to be done, um, I love all approaches. I take things from all approaches. I believe in the outcome-driven innovation, which in, in a few words, it says that we do stuff because we expect an outcome, and that's the outcome that... Um, we need to worry about. Um, I love Bob Moestas and Clay Christensen um, theoretical approach that uh, promotes the, the jobs to be done forces, the jobs to be done timeline and the customer journey that gets unpacked through, the, through them. So, but at the end of the day, I'm only jobs to be done, uh, no matter the approach. Great, so could you talk us through how you use the jobs to be done framework as the main methodology to support your research? It really depends on the problem. Um, jobs to be done is only um, a different way of um, seeing, th seeing things. It is a way of explaining consumer action. In fact, lots of, uh, lots of elements of, uh, of the jobs to be done uh, are used for quite some time before jobs to be done was a thing uh, from uh, design experts. Um, it's just that jobs to be done just, you know, um, created a robust theory with all of them and, and kind of grouped the theory into one thing. So how do I use jobs to be done? I can only answer that with uh, examples. Uh, when it comes to marketing, um, for example, and the way that we perceive us compared to competition, um, the traditional way says that uh, when we have an accounting software, we look at the other accounting softwares uh, to see how can we be, be how can we get better. The jobs to be done way says that uh, we don't necessarily look at the other accounting softwares. We look at the other ways or alternatives that uh, users uh, use or consider to have the same outcome or do the same job. So. In, uh, in the jobs to be done way, our competition might be a person, a process, a spreadsheet, and an accounting software. So if, if you think competition in the jobs to be done way versus the traditional way, the, the whole way that you are communicating your value proposition, the whole the way that you are building your pricing, uh, the purchasing criteria change, the copies change, the, the punchlines change, even the features and the UX might change because it's different to build for someone that switches from another accounting software to you and someone for, that switches from a spreadsheet to you. The, the, the product that you are building is, is a totally different thing. So you see, just, that was just a little example of how the jobs to be done way of doing things can entirely change the way that you approach marketing and product. Another example, uh, just for us not to be stuck to marketing, uh, let's, let's give an example about, um, about churn. So a few months ago, I was, I was working with a, 
with a quite big video conferencing solution that was competing with the biggest, the number one conferencing video conferencing solution, the one that we all know. So they were losing customers and these customers were going to their biggest competitor. Um, they, they had, they, they had the, among other things, we worked on the cancellation survey. Uh, I say among other things because we did like a ton of stuff together. But among other things, there was particularly one thing that uh, I still remember and I would love to share. So the customer, the, 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 the cancellation survey, it was asking among other things, what, what, what are you switching at? What is the solution that you are going after us? And um, it had uh, a couple of options. And um, users would, uh, would pick, we will go to, to Skype or we will go to Google Meet or we will go to Zoom or we will go to this solution or that solution. And uh, at some point I wanted to check this data and uh, I, I checked this data and I wondered what can we figure out and understand from that piece of information? What does it say to me if I have 10,000 replies of people that told me that, oh, we go to Zoom or we go to Google Meet or we go to Skype. It doesn't tell me anything. What it tells me, what, it, what, what I would need to do stuff is what is it that each of these solutions represents in their mind. So is Google Meet a fast solution, an easy solution? Is Zoom a corporate solution, a better solution for external meetings, a better solution for team meetings? Is Skype a more um, acceptable solution um, among uh, high-level executives? What is it that drove them to this solution and what is it that each solution represents? So we changed the cancellation survey and instead of naming the competitors, we described these things. We, we kind of wrote um, a better solution for uh, online courses or a more corporate solution or a more secure solution. So it was that element that helped us understand what is it truly that people switch at. And that, we, that is a jobs to be done driven cancellation survey. That's, that was another example. Uh, I'm an overtalker, Edward. Sorry for that. <laughs> so you can never overtalk on the growth of podcast. And uh, yeah, I think someone said if you work in SaaS, your biggest competitor is probably a spreadsheet. So I think this is where the jobs to be done framework is so helpful. And I know one other thing is that you speak about is that there is a value gap in marketing. So what do you mean by that? The the value gap is um the value gap is my favorite thing. Uh, last six to 12 months, is the, it's my favorite thing. Every time I work with a client, we start with uh, uh, problems or symptoms and we end up worrying about the value gap. So wh what is the value gap? Um, and why the value gap is the problem that you most probably have. If you have any problem uh, among the problems that we discussed so far, marketing, churn, which are the most common things, most probably you have a value gap problem. So the value gap is the discrepancy between what people expect to get from you and what they actually get from you. So this discrepancy is the gap of value that you are giving. So in, a, in an example, um, you might oversell what you're doing and under deliver. 
In that case, you will have lots of uh, people that free trial your solution or convert to your solution and then churn and then live ghosts. So you have the prob a problem deeper into the funnel. You might undersell and over deliver. In that case, you have some power users that love you, but you seem to have a marketing problem. You might, you might not oversell or undersell, but you might sell in a way that people don't understand. Or you might sell in a way that people don't care. In that case, again, you seem to have abnormalities in your funnel, perhaps have some people that like you, but struggling to find more of them. Uh, wondering why people don't see your value, wondering why people don't understand that you are very useful. You are very passionate about what you do. You have some customers that you like and that you care about, but other people don't seem to care so much. You seem to put too much effort to bring them in. So these are three very common examples that there is a value gap and that you need research to fix it. Because if you don't do research, you will guess. And if you guess, the result will be that most probably you will spend 10x more time and 10x more money into um, useless experiments or useless services or useless resources than just doing your research, eating your veggies and figuring out what exactly is the problem that causes the value gap. There is a specific analysis that you can do when it comes to value gap that I do, but if you have a researcher internally, you can do it yourself. And it's the following. You start by doing research on your absolutely best users, your power users. So you need to define what a power user is and then find 15 of them and speak to them, asking them the jobs to be done uh, stuff, the right stuff, now, which we can have another conversation, entirely different conversation to, to speak about the right questions. But we can start with power users. By starting with uh, power users user interviews, we establish what is good, what is the right expectation, what is the right thing to hear from people. Then we move to failed users, churned users, freshly churned users. And we ask exactly the same things that we ask the power users, but the opposite way. So instead of asking, what is it that you're getting from our solution? We ask, what was it that you expected to get from our solution and we failed to give you? So we ask the opposite things and we do that because we want to keep them comparable. Um, we do that for the failed users and we kind of compare what power users told us versus what failed users told us uh, using the method of clustering. So we cluster the feedback and we compare it. And finally, we do almost the same thing, but for fresh users. So now we go at the beginning of the funnel and we ask fresh users, what is it that you expect to get out of our solution? What is it that, are you, that you're switching from to us? And we compare that with what power users told us and what failed users told us. And with that, we highlight the differences between what's good and what's bad. And that, in that way, we can fix all of the abnormalities, no matter where they are. Are they in, within the product? Are they 
in our positioning? Are they in the in our ads, in the expectations that our ads create, or our landing pages create, or perhaps the features that we use, that we deliver are are not the right in order to give the value that we promise. So does that make sense, Edward? The, such stuff create abnormalities, and this is this value gap analysis can help you fix these abnormalities, no matter where they are. It's time for a commercial. Now, this podcast is brought to you by Advanced B2B, and Advanced B2B helps B2B SaaS companies from all around the world find their way to sustainable growth through marketing. And we have a special offer for listeners of the Growth Up podcast. You can go to advancedb2b.com slash TGH and get a free assessment of your marketing, plus some ideas you'll be able to implement right away. So go to advancedb2b.com slash TGH for more info. To the classic situation of expectations versus reality. And as you said, this is the job of marketing to really set expectations accurately. And I think this comes back to empathy, which is at the heart of the customer-led approach to growth. So one final question before we jump to our fast five closing questions. What then does it truly mean to have customer empathy as a marketer? You know, it's, this question uh, is, like, uh, is like asking me, what does it feel when you love someone? Uh, when you love someone, you just know it. Uh, but is it, is it easy for me to explain uh, how does it feel having empathy? No, it's not easy. I can tell you if we were having a love conversation, I would tell you that when you love someone, you can do everything about this person. So it, it's something similar with empathy. When you, when you have empathy about your users, you know ridiculously de- ridiculous details about them. Um, what does it mean ridiculous? You will know when you know it because you will feel that, oh my God, how did I come so far <laughs> without knowing such details? Lots of founders and marketers that I work, they, they feel that they are, that they have empathy because they have created a persona, a, a fictional persona with a fictional person that nobody empathizes with. They just did it uh, perhaps to show it to their investors or to recycle it internally and feel and believe that they have done the right thing. But in reality, they really don't know the person that they are building for. They cannot empathize with this person. And the quantitative data, they might be great, awesome, indispensable, but we are human beings. And no matter good you are with data and with graphs, In my point of view, nothing can compare with empathy, with the feeling that, oh, I've spoken with 50 of them and I know their ins and outs. I know everything. So let me give you a a quick example what empathy meant for me and the team that we worked together, an Irish team, a very good team, uh, last year. I started working with them. We started speaking with customers and... uh, after, after speaking with customers, we went from uh, uh, an ideal customer profile that was creative agencies to a, an ideal customer profile that was, we are approaching the person that faces clients within creative and marketing agencies in the European area that speaks 
English. We particularly want people that are not too junior, because if they are too junior, they might not have the courage to propose a new solution, but they are not too senior or vice presidents because they are very far from a problem that we are solving. We want people that are in their business, working in their business for at least two years, or they have been promoted within that business and that they understand uh, marketing. So they have done marketing. We also want people that share that at least 60 to 80% of their daily life has to do with sharing content. Now this sharing content thing has to do with the solution that I was working. I don't want to tell more details about the tool, but it, but it was helping people share content and get feedback. So see the amount of detail. Um, within the first couple of seconds, we would jump on a conversation and we would ask, hey, how, how, what would be the percentage of time that you spend on sharing, sharing content internally and with, with your clients and getting feedback? And people would say, oh, sometimes I do that. I mean, it's like five times per week or two times per week. And we would immediately disqualify them. We knew that they were wrong. We have found qualifiers, disqualifiers. We have found extreme quantitative data that describe them. But we also could understand them as people. We could understand their motivations. We could understand that when they share something and they want feedback, it's both the emotional aspect of, I want to look good towards my client. I want to look innovative towards my employer. But also, I don't want to, to spend so much time on collecting scattered feedback from all over the place. We also knew that they want to accommodate their clients so they, they will do everything that their clients want. And if their clients wouldn't approve of, of our solution, they would just reject it. So you see, Edward, I know everything about this customer. Everything. And if we, you know, it's not a fresh example to me, but if we keep talking, I can, I can remember more things and more and more and more. I know everything because I, because both me, the founder himself and the sales team and marketing people have spoken with more than 500 of them. In fact, this is a very, this is a quite interesting example because um, except the empathy that we build out of speaking with people, we realize that um, giving financial incentives to people to speak with us in order for us to do research was actually a, a better marketing channel than doing ads. It was cheaper. We were converting more people, not at the same pace, but uh, giving free money to people to bribe them to join a, a feedback session was cheaper than doing ads. Uh, so I just remember that. Um, so that's, that's how it feels for a marketer to have empathy. You know everything and you know why problems arise and you can fix them and you know ridiculous details about the people that use your solution. Wow, yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. And I think really great to hear, hear those examples and what you actually did. So super good huge amount of takeaways and we can now move to our closing questions and our fast 
five challenge. So to wrap things up, I'll ask five questions and all you need to do is answer as quickly as possible. So Agolas, are you ready? I am ready. All right, let's do it. First question, what is the one book you'd recommend others to read? What Customers Want by Tony Alwick. Nice. Second question, a SaaS company you love and why? Uh, I love Canva and Whereby because they invest in simplicity and the principle of uh, less is more. Awesome. Third question, favorite place to learn about marketing online? Growthmentor.com, where you can actually speak with experienced uh, growth people and marketers and uh, ask them whatever you want. Lots of them are free. (laughs) Awesome. Fourth question, most important growth metric? Retention rate, because it says the truth. It says the truth, why, if people actually stick to you. Nice. And then fifth and final question, best piece of advice for fellow marketers? Uh, Do research and uh, eat your veggies. (laughs) <laughs> awesome well Agolas I have to say this was a real pleasure and thank you so much for coming on the Growth of Podcast Edward thank you very much for having me uh, I enjoyed our conversation a lot that was Agolas Muzakitis on how customer research can help B2B SaaS companies grow to their potential so thank you so much for listening and if you're enjoying the show we'd love for you to leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And as ever, you're always welcome to reach out to me on Twitter at Nordic Edward or connect on LinkedIn. So thank you so much for listening to the Growth of Podcast brought to you by Growth Marketing Agency Advanced B2B. This is your host, Edward Ford, signing off and make sure you check out advancedb2b.com for more content and resources on everything B2B SaaS growth. It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember, it's the risk takers that are Biggest story today in sales and marketing is how our customers are buying.